A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herleman, sponsored by Starburst. Starburst is a single platform to help you activate all your data, no matter where it lives. Check out our new Data Products for Dummies ebook to learn more about how your organization can utilize data products. To download your free copy, head on over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 276, Making Self-Service Actually Work Well Safely. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Kate Carruthers, who's the head of business intelligence at the UNSW AI Institute and the chief data and insights officer at UNSW, or the University of New South Wales. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views on the episode. UNSW is not currently implementing data mesh, Kate and I talked about this. She's preparing to be able to implement data mesh. You know, I think this is a great lesson in building up the capabilities to move forward towards your goals, but not rush. They're heading towards a data lake house architecture to start before they really want to start heading down the data mesh path. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Kate's point of view. Number one, universities can teach us some really interesting perspectives on self-serve. Because universities are such complex organizations, and so many departments are involved in deep investigations and research into very specific areas, they really are the only domain experts inside the the organization, right? If somebody's really, really focused on one very narrow thing for their PhD or as a as a professor, they're the only ones that are really those domain experts. So enabling them to even own their own data can be very challenging, let alone helping them to understand how to share their data with others safely. Number two, relatedly, each academic researcher is essentially a microdomain themselves with their own ways of working. This keeps coming up about uh, kind of coinciding with people's ways of working. Well, each researcher has their own. That just adds to the need to enable freedom in ways of working, but still keep them, you know, as uh, Kate said multiple times, keep them safe. And safety was a, a key theme of the general conversation. 
Number three, quote, at the end of the day, data mesh is about controlling the bits that you need to control and giving people the freedom to do what they need to do safely. Number four, quote, technology is kind of the least of your problems. You know, when it comes to data, be prepared to start with some people not even recognizing there is a problem with the current ways of working or a need to improve. Connect their pain to data immaturity to win them over. For sure, they've got some pains. Find out what those are and then connect them to the data immaturity. Number five, the best way to win people over is show, don't tell. Show them the power of self-service instead of pitch them on it. Get a POC going and get the people to tangibly see and hopefully relatively quickly touch your self-service capabilities early. Number six, always look to anchor your data work, especially things like platform work, to a business need. How will doing the work impact the overall business, the overall organization? Why is it important to do and to do now? Number seven, when trying, when tying your data work to the overall business strategy for your organization, do not forget the people aspect. The relationships matter. Your work on the data team definitely isn't only about technical execution. Get that out of your head. I know it's the easiest, it's the most tangible, but get that out of your head. Number eight, potentially controversial. Build a culture around data that is as focused on building human relationships as it is on building data pipelines and platforms. Number nine, another potentially controversial one, to share personal or sensitive information, you know, such as PII. A producer should justify what it's, why it's appropriate, and a data controller should review that. Keep humans in the loop. Stop trying to make all of the governance aspect of sharing sensitive data automated. It's it's a recipe for getting yourself into trouble. Number 10, you know, giving data owners, and this is what UNSW calls uh, data controllers, but giving those data owners a say in how their data is actually used can get them more excited to share their data. It isn't a silver bullet to data sharing incentivization, but it adds value to them. They, they get to say, how should this be used or how shouldn't it be used? Number 11, good conversations about access to sensitive data shouldn't be yes or no, right? It shouldn't be that simple binary, oh, we can't do this, right? They're about getting to what is acceptable and maximizing value within that framing of what is acceptable. Get people to share what they're trying to accomplish and then partner to best achieve what they're trying to accomplish. Number 12, invest in business analysts. They are your front line to figuring out how to proceed against around data and and generate value around your data. You need people who can speak business and data simultaneously to drive to great outcomes. And business analysts, that's kind of the exact role. They're business and they're analysts. Number 13, find ways to prevent data puddles, especially places where people are copying data and then not securing it well. You know, one, you don't want to have all these copies of data for many, many different reasons, but that not securing data well is is a big potential problem. Number 14, quote, people overestimate the power of making change really fast and underestimate the power of sustained incremental change. Number 15, 
somewhat relatedly, give people a mental map for change. Let them understand what's changing, why, how. It removes the fear of the change and it lets them lean in. You're, you're creating change now with and through them instead of pushing change on them. Finally, number 16, potentially controversial, chat GPT and other related Gen AI can actually be a great benefit to education. We have to lean into it as it's not as though students won't have access to these tools in their work life, and their real life post-education. So getting them to still learn in general, but leveraging these new emerging better tools is essential to their progress as they progress through their careers and lives. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Kate Carruthers here, who's the head of BI for UNSW AI Institute. To be clear, though, she's only representing our own views. And we're going to talk about UNSW's journey towards thinking about data mesh and why they're kind of taking a stop along the way and not trying to jump right into those data mesh waters, go go for the lake house first. Um, We're going to talk about how do we actually think about exposing data to people without having to do the work each time? How do we get people into such a mode where they can actually fend for themselves? But how do you also limit risk? How do you think about creating that as a scalable uh, approach instead of, again, having to do kind of one-off, one-off, one-off? You know, just the general concept that I I talk about this with Data Mesh a lot. Not everything should be decentralized. Why? How do you figure out what should be and, and what shouldn't? And then also, um, Kate's got some really good perspective on how Gen AI is starting to be used in universities. And so um, I think that's a topic that a lot of people are very interested in. But before we get to that, Kate, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Thanks very much, Scott. So so nice to join you. Um, So I'm the um, head of business intelligence for the UNSW, that's the University of New South Wales, AI Institute in Sydney, Australia, and I'm also the Chief Data Officer for the university. And uh, the AI Institute is all about inventing the future of AI, which is really exciting to be part of. It's a research institute, and as in my other part of my day job is Chief Data Officer of the university, which is actually managing data as an asset across the entire organisation. And how I came to that was... um, I had a number of roles in ICT in big organizations, big global multinationals, and I did a lot of data projects. And I suddenly realized about 10 years ago that we were about to undergo a very big digital transformation and that data would underpin it as an organization. We would need to be on top of our data if we were going to be able to ride that wave. So that's what's really been driving me for the last 10 years is this journey to uh, get our data into a place where we can actually undergo that kind of digital transformation. 
And I'd love to hear even a little bit about like, what are the, what is the data of a university, right? Like, is this just on the actual students and things like this? Or are you helping the departments manage their data around their research? Or like, how does that actually come about? Uh, if, if we could jump into a little bit about that that day-to-day job. So I always think of the university data in three realms. So the first realm is is the the realm of administration. What you would in if you're in a bank, you'd call it enterprise. So the running of the place as a business, and we have the same kind of data that any kind of other kind of organisation has. You know, we've got finance systems, we've got student systems, we've got CRMs, we've got all of them. And the second uh, realm of data that I think about is learning and teaching, which is kind of similar to enterprise data, but it's specifically around the teaching of students. So they're specific custom systems that are effectively our, our, our custom enterprise systems. And then the third realm is, is research, which is the pure research for, for the, you know, finding new information and uh, discovering new things. And the way I always describe that is in, we're inventing the future. So there are three different realms and sort of the first two, the administrative data and the learning and teaching data are kind of like enterprise data, but research data is kind of really wild. Is There's every single kind of data that you can imagine from um, we've got um, satellite dishes on top of our buildings where we take feeds from satellites, we do climate research, we do medical research, we do you know petroleum research, we do all kinds of research you can imagine as a large uh, research intensive university. So that's the they're the three realms of data that I always think about as for us as an organization. Yeah, I think when you started to think about data mesh, was it, you know, if, I mean, sometimes those organizations, when you talk about that kind of enterprise data, the the administration and the learning and the teaching, maybe there are enough domains to say, man, we should look at this, you know, or this, or is it that the research is really pushing you into that that realm of data mesh where you give people the, that self-service capability? Like what what made you start to think, this is something we should look to in the future, if not immediately jump into right now. Well, first of all, I'll just explain. I always clump the first two, the the administrative and learning and teaching into one sort of bucket because they're very similar and research into its own bucket. And there's really good reason to consider data mesh for the future of both of those. So both of those areas. Um and in, indeed, we're actually contemplating um, what kind of um, research or workbench we need to provide in the future right now. So we're starting to think about a project to, to conceptualise what we can do to provide a, a workbench for researchers. And the challenge you've got when you're providing something for researchers is um, they're all individuals. They're, all, they're, like, they're like small sharecroppers who run their own small farms and so there's a lot of them and they have a lot of individuality and they don't want that to be crushed. And so that's a real challenge to manage that and allow them to flourish the way that they need to, but also to keep them safe. And in the in the other two realms, the administration and learning and teaching, um, there's even more good reasons uh, to, to move towards a data mesh because realistically at the end of the day, a data mesh is about controlling the bits that you need to control and giving people the freedom to do what they need to do 
uh, safely. And I think that that's that's a really attractive thing for me to contemplate for both kind for all those kinds of data because that's what we really want. We want we hire smart people and we want them to be able to do their jobs and we want them to be able to use data to drive important outcomes but we want them to be able to do it safely and we don't want things like data duplication we don't want i keep calling them data puddles we don't want them to be creating their own little data puddles that are insecure and stuff like that so we really want to be able to provide safe environments for people to do their jobs i mean and you, you mentioned the word safe quite a quite a bit which i i think is an interesting uh, approach here well, one question i would have i mean i think on the administration and the learning and teaching side, that interoperability is is far more, or it, it's kind of more of an obvious thing, right, as to why you would want that and all that. On the research side, are you seeing that different departments really would like to collaborate and this is what you're trying to unlock for them? You know, you talked about kind of uh, unlocking the future and, and uh, designing for the future. Is that something where or is that getting way ahead of ourselves of like, hey, you know, I, I don't know that this this team really needs to collaborate with this other completely, you know, no, no, the no, finance. It's, and, all, it's yeah. all about collaboration and it's collaboration across the organizational silos. You know, we call them faculties and schools, but it's people cross doing cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary collaboration now. I might just tell you a story because it was about 10 years ago. Uh, when I first arrived at university and I was um, doing a research project with some folks in the, in the School of Medicine and uh, we were doing some work with Indigenous data. So um, our Indigenous people are called our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and we were doing some research about their health and it was very sensitive data. And I, I said, where are we allowed to store this? How are we supposed to look after this data? And everyone was going, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. And so we've done all this paperwork, we've done ethics approval, we had all of this stuff that we went through, and at the end of the day, nobody helped us work out how to secure that data. So we knew what we were wanting to achieve from the research, we knew how to do it, but one thing we didn't have as a research group, you know, a bunch of doctors, a bunch of um, PhDs and postdocs, we didn't know where we could store that data safely, we didn't um, know how we could de-identify it. Um, in an adequate way, and there was a whole lot of questions we had. And that's what really started me on my journey into becoming the Chief Data Officer for the university. That's great. And, and I think a lot of what you're talking about is is the, the something that I'm seeing some people skip over, which is jobs to be done. Like, what, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Not just, wouldn't it be great if we could have all this stuff completely unlocked versus, hey, like, let's talk about what this could unlock for us of, you know, the, exactly what you're talking about with doing this stuff safely. Oh, it gives us the ability to open up all of these completely new new vistas instead of just like, hey, we want to be data-driven, right? It's, it's, hey, we're actually trying to accomplish these, you know, X number of tasks or whatever, and that this is, is that approach. I'd, I'd love to hear why you decided to, you know, I, I fully agree with your decision to do this because I tell people don't jump into data mesh too too early, but why you decided to go in the data lake house route before you really started to go, okay, we're going full data mesh. Well, at the end of the day, it, it's really about the technology is kind of the least of your problems. 
um, more often you've got the real problem about the people that you're dealing with not having a mental map of what, what where you're trying to go on this journey. They don't even know there's a journey when you start out. So, um, so you need to actually get the people, the process, and the technology lined up. So we started our journey back in 2018 when I had this vision for a serverless um, data platform. And I mentioned it to a few people around the university and they're like, I don't know what one of those is. And I was like, so I had to build them a proof, proof of concept that would show them. And the, the thing that I wanted to demonstrate them was the speed. So we had, we've had we had a legacy data warehouse for more than 20 years. So we're very early adopters of data warehousing technology. It's been an on-prem data warehouse. Um, but I could see that we would get a lot more flexibility if we migrated to the cloud. And so the first step was getting people to buy into the idea that we should move to the cloud. And the big thing that, the big thing that was um, troubling all my business colleagues was the fact that it took six months to onboard a new data resource and build, a f- build the first report. So I was able to demonstrate to them in three weeks, we were able to onboard some new data sources, build some new dashboards, and have them ready to demo within three weeks, which blew them away. And so they were able to say, oh, yeah, I can see the benefits we will get from this. So cloud wasn't the destination. Cloud was how do we how do we deliver some business benefits to you? Um, so my team with the ball back, they, the, they were slow because the technology was slow. But if I tried to lead with I want to do the technology thing, it wouldn't have mattered. So it was a matter of finding the business benefits. So we migrated to the cloud in 2018 and um, it was a really good project and roll on a couple of years. In 2021, 2020, 2021, we were doing our first machine learning proof of concept. And one of the problems that we found was that we had to keep pulling the data out of the data lake, out of the data warehouse. So to run the machine learning, we had to pull the data, we put the data in and we'd have to pull the data out again to run our machine learning pipelines. And it was like, we need a new architecture. We need a more, more. I, I described it to my team when I told them to go and find, find us a, a modern architecture, is data warehouse is last century's technology. What's the 21st century's technology for us that will enable us to be more efficient and will allow us to to drive from our same pipeline. I want to I want one pipeline that can drive our our BI BI analytics and reporting, our AI and ML, and our services because increasingly our data is being used to drive low code services. And so that was that was the mission that I gave the team to go and work out what a twenty first century architecture that would enable that would look like. And so they came up with that. They went around, they did their research, they came back and pitched me the data lake house, um, which I'd already kind of identified as the way we, we should probably go in the future. Um, so we did it and uh, we're just finalising that migration right now. And um, it's, it's really streamlined our operations. It's kind of happened under the covers, so we haven't really articulated what we've done to the business. It's kind of a plumbing thing from our perspective, because they're still getting all their reports, their reports still work the same there, they're all happy. But now we can drive our major ML pipelines and AI pipelines, as well as our low-code apps, which are increasingly um, putting demands on us. 
that makes sense. I think, um, you know, I've talked about this a little bit with my unicorn farts theory, which is kind of starting to fade a little bit away. But I've talked about if you're going to go and talk to the business people and you're going to talk all about data mesh, you might as well just call it unicorn farts because they don't care. They don't care. Like we keep trying to take them on the sausage factory tour and we're dragging them, you know, offer the sausage factory tour. If somebody really wants to know the plumbing and the how, great. Like they want to lean in, they want to understand, great. But they want to know like, what is this enable? What, what can I do? They just want the sausages. They want to know what's in them, you know, a little bit about the, um, like what flavor am I going to get and things like that, you know, the quality level and stuff. But yes, they're, they're there to eat. They're not there to, to learn how to make sausages. Um, so it's it's funny that you're doing this kind of in, in the background. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, how you did get that that buy-in. Like, who did you have to talk to? Because there are a lot of people that are struggling to, to do this. I know this wasn't exactly what we were planning on talking about, but I, this is fascinating. And so, like, because people are are going out there and are having the, the conversations that aren't being nearly as as fruitful as what you're doing. So um, was this just kind of, hey, we're doing this or did you have to go and get a, a lot of approval or, or do you just kind of have that? We're not, we're, we're not part of the IT department, but we comply with their practices. So, you know, we comply with all of their architecture review practices and stuff. So we had to go to the architecture review board and present what we were going to do and explain what we were going to do and get all the architects to buy in. Um, so, you know, we, but um, one of the things that we always do in my team is we anchor it in a business need. So I keep telling the team, if you're doing anything that you can't anchor to a business need, then why are you doing it? So if nobody needs it, why are you doing it? So for us, it was um, we've got a big um, AI project in the student experience project uh, in the student experience domain that's running, and for that to work effectively, that means that we needed to have our pipelines running so that we could support both BI and AI, and from a single pipeline because we've got a really small team. So that was the imperative for us. How do we do it with existing resources? And how do we do it? And the other thing that we've got coming up next year is we wanted to start to democratize access to our data. So we want people to be able to self-help data in a secure way and straightening out our pipelines and making the data warehouse go away was a big part of that. So we can now expose the data to people with our secure, through our security model so that they'll be able to self-help for, for their data needs, which is long. It's been a long a dream of mine to do that, but it's taken years, you know, it's taken since 2018 to get all of our ducks lined up so that we can actually do this. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Benny Benford, who is formerly the CDO at Jaguar Land Rover, talked about their transformation journey, and it was like, it was a six-year thing, right? I think a lot of people are looking for this to be like historical IT projects versus transformation needs momentum and trying to do a huge, huge shove in that transformation. You know, it might work, but a lot of times it's it's high risk. So I, I, I wanted to, to, I mean, I want to give you space to react to that as well, but I, I want to um, dig in a little bit on what you talked about of anchoring to business needs because, you know, I'm, I'm more of a business person than I am a data person. And so, um, you know, yes, of course, you know, I, I fully, fully agree. But how are you working with your team to help them 
understand how to find those business needs or anchor it to the business strategy. You know, we had a panel on tying the data work um, all the way up to the business strategy via the data strategy and kind of, you know, up and down as to make sure your data work is actually tied to the business strategy. So I'd love to hear how you're working with your teams to know that. The formal stuff, you know, the formal joining of strategy up up and down is one thing, but it's actually the human relationships that that really matter. And um, so one of the things that I say to my team is I'll never be cross with you if I see you out having coffee with our customers. So they've all built really good relationships with their business colleagues. And, you know, uh, they go and have coffee with them, they have lunch with them, and they've built solid relationships, which mean that they can have meaningful dialogue with them about what they need. So we're hooked into what our business partners actually need um, to help them deliver on their strategy and their jobs. So I think that's the important thing because the formal bit's the formal bit, but at the end of the day, it's human beings. I mean, are you recruiting for people that already think like that or are you training them? Just because I know this has been, um, this is something that kind of came back from Big Data London of data people building data things for data people instead of doing data work for the overall organization and building tooling for the overall organization for people to use. So like, are you just finding that it's a pretty simple conversation or do you have to kind of break people from some historical bad habits? No, no. So, so I think I think we've got a really strong normative culture now. So our our team culture is so very strongly set now that when you come in, you get absorbed into it, or you go away very quickly. So you either you come in and you go, oh, I don't like this, and turn around and go straight away again if you don't want to work like that. Um, otherwise, you you tend to just adopt. What our ways of working and our ways of working are written down, but they're also strongly inculturated. So you're in no, no, uh, there's no way you can not understand the imperatives in our team. And the team's just hilarious. They, they run themselves like we run it kind of democratically. So, you know, um, they, they get to set the agenda, they get to set the timing for the work that they do, but it's all got to be anchored to a business need. And so, you know, we take the whole agile approach with user stories, with a human being who's articulated that need behind it really seriously. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there, there's a lot in there that, that I really liked, but I think just the managing themselves, that's that whole, are, are you a leader or a manager? And it sounds like, you know, you're a leader more than you're the, the manager. You know, you are, you know, obviously from the title perspective, but it's like, hey, I'm going to help you go in the right direction, but I'm not going to micromanage. I'm not I'm not going to kind of make sure I understand absolutely everything. I trust you as long as you understand these roles. It's the thing. You can't know everything. It's You've got to trust your team because the only way you can achieve large things is by teamwork. You, you can't do it alone. If you want to build stuff alone, then you go and have your one person's, you know, small business. If you want to build big stuff in big organizations, you've got to do it through people and you've got to build trusting relationships so that people can feel that they can achieve. And they need to know what's not achievable and also be uh, not afraid to say it. Yeah. Uh, Benny Benford also said, you know, uh, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. 
And so um, I we, we were talking a little bit about it uh, earlier, but I'd love to hear about this trying to expose data to people without having to do the work, you know, as the, the data people. But like, how do you limit the risk, not just from risk of uh, PII and data leaks and things like that, but also kind of the self, the, the ability to harm yourself with data by not understanding what you're dealing with. So I'd love to hear how you're heading down that road, because it's one, a lot of people are finding that overly indexing on self-serve has hurt them because they're not over indexing on making sure the data is super, super well documented and structured so that, that people aren't really sure what they're getting, but they can get access to it. Yeah. Well, we're, we're attacking that on a number of levels. The first thing that we do is um, if people want to use any personal information, they actually need to complete a data sharing agreement and they need to get the data controller to agree to their use of that data. And our data controllers are very diligent human beings who who take every request very seriously, and they they say things like, "You can have that field, but not that one." I don't I don't agree that you should have that one. So like they will not give they will not routinely give people student personal emails, even though they may get other personally identifiable information to students. They will not give that because we've known that pe- once people get that, they tend to use it. So. You know, we, we're very careful about what data we give out to people and then they actually sign a contract. There's a data sharing agreement. They, they get told these are the terms. You've got to secure the data in this manner and form. You're not allowed to pass it on. You're not allowed to use it for secondary purposes and stuff. So there's that side of it. So that's, that's a bit of um, command control sort of thing. Um, the other thing is um, we've also taken the idea that that people need to know certain things to do their job. Like some of our teachers, they can walk into a classroom and know who's in their classroom. So why shouldn't they know who's in their class? So what we've tried to do is actually take the idea that people need to know what they need to know to do their job and we should just give them that. They shouldn't have to ask for that. So we're trying to turn this whole – on one side there's the I'm asking for data and I need to do a data sharing agreement. But the other side of it is – I'm doing a job and there's a lot of other people like me doing a similar job. And why am I even asking for this? Because I already need to know it to do my job. So I, I like a lot of what you're saying, especially the the data sharing agreement thing. I've been trying to say any user needs to register their use case. Um, even if you have you know non-data sharing agreement, you have data products that people can access. I, as a producer, I need to know what you're actually using it for. One, for... Um, that, you know, making sure you're not using it inappropriately, but two, oh, you're doing this. Hey, you know, we've got this data that would actually be better around that, or I can add this, or you're you're untransforming this column. Why don't I just stick in the raw as well as the transformed column? And so you don't have to do work. And, you know, so I think that's, um, I like a lot of what you're saying. And, and, you know, people think that something like a data sharing agreement is is too much overhead and it's you know uh, oh blah 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 and i'm just not seeing it i'm not seeing that when you have those little checkpoints that it's really slowing people up it's it's creating those relationships so then that that data owner actually does know what it's being used for and they are um you know uh, being cautious to not just give access to everybody like has that been has that caused any kind of friction or are people pretty 
I mean, in the U.S., I think that definitely would. I don't know if Australia is a little bit better about uh, protecting uh, people's data. I think I think it was really funny when we first implemented them, and it was a number of years ago that we did. Um, the the data controllers, the people who are data owners, um, they they it was the first time they'd ever been listened to because people used to just go to IT and grab their data, and they never had a say in its use. And this really empowered them, so they they really liked it. And the other thing is that it's helping us to uncover a whole lot of um, uses of data that we weren't aware of. So third-party software as a service that, you know, people are downloading CSVs in an uncontrolled manner and then uploading it to. So we're actually managing to, you know, corral those and get them a cyber review and a a third-party security review. So, you know, a lot of it's actually adding a lot of value to the rigor that we're able to bring to those relationships because the people that are doing these things, they're trying to do their job, but they don't know what they don't know. So when they when we surface it and go, you need a data sharing agreement, and then we go, oh, what are you doing with it? Oh, my God, you're doing this. Have you had a cyber review? So it's, it's opening up all sorts of interesting conversations uh, around the organisation and allowing us to bring a whole lot of other people to the table. So one of the important things we do in the data space is is we we always bring not just ourselves, but um, privacy, our, our records and archives, our cybersecurity, our information security people, our risk people together, because for us it's kind of a team sport. Because if we're not if we're not covering off all of those bases, then we're the data's at risk. You know, with those data sharing agreements with, you know, unauthorized copying and all sorts of those things. Are you like, you know, there's some people that are building platforms that absolutely prevent anybody from doing anything. Um, you know, Disney had a really interesting platform where they give people a lot more access than they than they might in another organization because literally their data mesh is completely locked. And so you can't exfiltrate any data no matter what. So, you know, they, they kind of have those reviews that, that come through. But is it, hey, we're going to trust you, and if you do the wrong thing, it's it's on your you know on your head, so be it, right? But or are you building a lot? No, so so we're you know we're doing we're doing uh, a data loss prevention program next year, you know, so we're doing all the controls, the proper cyber controls that any organization would do. Um, in, in addition, but one of the things we want to do is give people access to the data that they need to know to do their job. And for some people, that's quite, you know, high levels of sensitive data uh, because they need to know that. On the other hand, you know, there's there's things that they don't don't need to have, which we can, which, which is within our power to redact or not show or scramble. So one of the things that we're going to do next year is is go through methodically and do that across the data that we've got. You know, so there's no good reason for anybody. Our tax file number, our TFN, is the equivalent to your SSN, uh, and nobody needs to see that. You know, so there's no good reason for anyone to have that except the finance person who needs to put it in to report to the government. Yeah, I heard this one a long time ago about. And it was more relevant in the U.S. when you had kind of landlocked phone numbers. But somebody was like, we need to get access to people's phone numbers. And the other side was like, absolutely not. There's no way that we're going to allow that. 
And they went back and forth, back and forth. And it turned out that all they wanted was the area code so they could get an approximate location of these people. And so that becomes, you know, slightly PII, but not really PII. You know, it's pretty anonymized when you think about it, especially at a very large um, sample size of, you know, tens of millions of people. Um, you know, uh, there, it became something that wasn't nearly as big of a, a deal. So how, like, how much are you getting involved in these conversations versus it's the, the two other people, you know, the, the data owner and the, the proposed data user, and they come to you only when they have questions or are you like, you know, banks? Um... I've got a data governance manager who, who does all of the coordination for that. So she, she manages that, um, those conversations and I'm usually an escalation point. But the thing is that our our data owners are really so diligent, and they they genuinely want to protect their data. They want they want to look after it, so they do a really great job of um, saying, "Look, we're we're willing to give you this and this, but we're not willing to give you that for these reasons." And and there's those kind kinds of conversations where you need to keep asking why. Why do you need that? like that example you just used of they just wanted the area codes. Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why in one of the first reports that I got built um, during COVID was uh, a, a demographic um, overlay for the student data because people wanted to see where students were when they applied, where they were during term, because in the old days, Pre-COVID, we used to just know that people would be in a classroom. The start of class, when when the term started, people would just be sitting in a classroom. With COVID, there were people all over the world. We had no idea where anybody was. So we had we had to start caring about where people really were during class. And hilariously now, because we've got rules for international students, we actually care if they're in the country or not when they're studying because there's rules for how many um, units they're allowed to study online and stuff. So there's government regulations. So understanding that and, and giving people that that insight without giving access to the underlying data is actually really important to them. Yeah. Again, you were talking about there is a job to be done. So you figured out a safe way to do that rather than just being like, hey, we're going to drop all people's IP addresses for when they log into the Zoom. That's probably not the best uh, thing to be doing. Um, how, like, have you found that you're... One of the, the things that I'm finding when I'm talking to a lot of organizations is the business people aren't as data literate, aren't as data savvy. And so a lot of times they'll come in with a proposed way of doing something and it's absolutely not feasible or it's not uh, the right way from all sorts of ethics and, and legal issues. Are you finding that that people are now comfortable coming to you and saying, here's what we're trying to achieve. Like, let's work backwards toward, towards a thing. Because I'm, I'm finding that a lot of people are having are struggling having those conversations because people are like, I want to do it the way I want to do it instead of I want to achieve what I want to achieve. Are, are you struggling with those conversations at all? Or No, no, because the best investment I ever made was in my BAs. Um, so I've got BAs, people request, make requests through an online form, and then my BAs triage it and, and speak to everybody and have a, an actual conversation with them that 
tries to tease out all of those things. Well, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to do it that way? Have you? Did you know we could do it this way? So it, the best investment I ever made was in a bunch of business analysts. Yeah, it's it's funny. The uh, a lot of people doing data mesh, they're saying you know uh, whether their data analysts or their business analysts are leading the upskilling or they're handling a lot of that ad, ad hoc and training somebody to actually do that themselves or you know kind of almost uh, in, in a data sherpa type of role of like hey. Let's let's go and explore what's out there and and kind of help them. It's it's something where a lot of people are really trying to cut at the BAs, but it's it just it seems a little foolhardy in a lot of. I mean, sometimes you just have to cut budget, but it seems like those are the ones that are going to be your best points of leverage for actual business value. And and you need to keep them around long enough so they get to understand the underlying data because my lead BA, he's just amazing. He's a great human being. He's really, he's really nice to talk to. You find yourself telling him everything, you know, but he also understands the data and can whip together a demo Power BI to show you what things might look like and stuff like that. So, you know, he's worth his weight and gone. Well, we'll make sure that he doesn't hear that so then he doesn't come No, no, I tell him that all the time. He knows, he knows he's good. So... One thing that we were looking at, at talking about as well that I think has been we woven throughout this conversation is um, the idea of what do we have to decentralize versus what what don't we have to decentralize? Because, you know, this is something I, I fight a lot of data mesh, but a lot of what you're doing is, you know, somewhat centralized, somewhat decentralized, and you're kind of, it seems like you're finding the balance and it might be different even in each domain and things like that. So. How do you think about having that conversation with with people where you know data people are typically used to being having everything centralized versus you go, okay, it's just free for all self-serve. Like how do you figure out that balance and how how do you figure out when you've become out of balance? Maybe you found a good initial equilibrium and now it's no longer there. I know it's a very difficult question. Look, I think I think the the piece of work that we've just done jointly with IT, which is to develop a target architecture, data architecture for the university for enterprise data, is is the, it's the first time we've done this, and it's been a really important um, piece of work. And we've come up with so the enterprise we 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 would need all of the data centrally so that we can surface it to people as and when they need it, because what we've discovered is that there are people run around the place who are, are getting a copy of a bit of data and mashing it up with their local data. And the thing is that if if we if it was all in one place, we would just be able to expose that to them and they'd be able to be be able to develop insights from that. So the question that we've grappled with is how do we for for all of that enterprise like data we think it all just needs to be in one place. And realistically, um, it, it's a very simple process to add another data source in, in, in a, into a pipeline. Um, so, But one of the things we want to stop is people taking some of our core source data and making copies of it, what I call data puddles. Um, so I, I re we really want to stop all this proliferation of data puddles because they're not very well secured. They're not always up to date. So, you know, they're, they're not always timely in their updating. 
So we want to give people that central data and then they can mash it up with their local data. So that's going to be the project for us over the next couple of years of sorting all of that out, I suspect. Yeah. Well, I like that you said literally over the next couple of years. It's not over the next quarter. It's not, you know, it's saying, hey, this takes the time, right? Well, one of, one of the things that, that we worked out with the, when we did that piece of work was we needed to make some fundamental dis- decisions about things like where does integration sit? Does it all sit in the one platform or not? And so we, we've, we've worked out all of that and now we've just got to work out how do we do this? And it's it's very much a joint exercise between my team and and the IT team to work that out. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't know what will happen, um, but I think it's essential for it to happen for the future of the organization. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I'm going to get into the, the Gen AI as we wrap up and stuff, but I'd love to hear your thoughts around what you've learned and, and your approach as to how you would share that to others, right? Like what you're talking about right now, a lot of it is kind of this state and steady approach rather than trying to rush through. But, you know, sometimes people have specific goals and budgets and, you know, they're more pushed on a quarterly cycle. But like, how do you think about maybe that communication if someone were to to come and ask you for some advice? I know it's hard to distill it all into some advice, but is is there anything that you kind of think about when you're, you're thinking about this approach of doing this in the right way over the right time period? I, two things. First of all, I think people overestimate the power of making change really fast and underestimate the power of incremental change, sustained incremental change. So you can make a change really, really fast and it makes a big hullabaloo and everybody gets out of joint and everything. But if you just plug away at that every day for a year, you can make that change over a year and nobody's been upset everybody's, because it's sort of gradual, but it's, you know, it's not endless, you can actually achieve an awful lot. If you, so we have around about 200, 220 business days a year. You make change every single one of those days, that's 200-ish changes a year. Times that by the number of people you've got, that's an awful lot of change in a year. You know, so you can make big change over reasonably short timeframes using incremental methods that don't require the same level of change management, of uh, re- reconstituting people's mental maps. So, and that that leads into my other thing is to make change. You 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 need people to have a mental map for the change, and that actually takes time. And you know, to implement all of our technology changes that we've made over the years. We've had to sit down and spend time with people to just even get them to understand what we're even talking about. You know, with that whole um, serverless data lake idea that I had all those years ago, nobody even understood why that might be a good idea. But um, now everyone just accepts it as, as real. But we had to buy that mental real estate and, you know, build up that mental model in their mind so that they understood what we were trying to achieve. Yeah, I've been using the uh, alliteration phrase of maintaining mesh momentum, and that that momentum is what drives change. It's not this giant shove to try and do that because you know then you kind of have that um, you know Sisyphus analogy of it's just going to roll back on you. But like you know, versus building up the momentum to actually move forward. 
Um, so I, I wanted to wrap up around how you're seeing Gen AI. Um, you know, it's obviously I just got back from Big Data London and everybody was talking Gen AI. I mean, it was everyone used everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I have my skepticism. I also think there's some really interesting aspects to it. So I'd love to hear how you're seeing Gen AI being used in, in universities and how you're especially looking at this from the AI Institute. So a broad question, but kind of wherever you want to go with that. Oh, well, so so for the AI Institute, they're kind of inventing the future. So they're inventing the next big thing. So we'll we'll see that when it comes out. Um, but but across the organisation, one of the things that we're seeing is is um, integrating ChatGPT with other things like cognitive services, like text mining, like um, all the other AI stack tools. Because um, a, a large language model, an LLM, only knows what it knows, and they're getting better every day. They're getting better intraday sometimes. Sometimes I log in in the morning and. They've done one thing, and by the evening they've done something new. But um, but but it's all evolving so quickly. But what we see, what I'm, what I can foresee is a future whereby we have, um, you know, we got all these apps on our phone. I can foresee a future where we don't have any apps on our phone except we have a Chat GPT like interface where we ask it to do stuff, and it knows contextually what we're asking. So you might ask it to play your favorite song. And it will know what service your favorite song is and it'll go and get it. And you won't, it might know that it's on Spotify or some, or, or maybe even Amazon Music. Who knows? There's got to be some people using Amazon Music. Um, but, um, but it'll know wh- where your particular favorite song is and be able to play it. And it won't need an app to do that. So I see the future for us with generative AI is moving us towards an API-driven future, which we've talked about for years, but that's actually going to become real because I can see that this, and it'll be a series of chatbots that you'll be able to talk to, and all the APIs will be where all the power lives. And I see that we're going to have um, LLMs on our devices. So we will have a custom LLM on our mobile phone. We will have one on our laptop, on our PC, as well as large corporate models. And so we are going to see a proliferation of LLMs across our devices and that they will change the way we think about how we interface with computers. And I think that's the really interesting thing. How do you think about Gen AI and disrupting of learning? Because we've seen this already with, um, you know, some people throw the the zoomers you know gen z under the the bus and everything like that of um that they can't do all of these things that they don't know how to to uh, do any research they don't know how to go and and find information and assess if it's uh, good information or bad information i don't know that i fully agree with all that stuff i think there's just some examples of of some not so bright people and that happens in every generation um so but how do you think about that risk to academia of just the way that people learn isn't actually learning. It's just asking and getting an answer instead of actually going through that process of learning. Are you seeing that as a risk? You're, or? Sounding, you're sounding kind of Homeric. I can just imagine Homer, the guy who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, just because that was that was a spoken word world. And you memorized your ver- 
verses and they were in verse to help you memorize them. And suddenly people started writing stuff down and I'm sure they were saying exactly the same things. Kids these days, they're writing stuff down on these stone tablets. They're not memorizing anything. Oh my God, the world is, woe is us. What are we going to do? I think that this has always happened. And then when books came, we said the same thing. Suddenly we don't have to remember anything. Our ability to write, write it down has changed the nature of learning. We're, it's the same thing. It's the same thing happening again. So it's just another shift in, in the technology, you know, from writing on stone tablets, writing on parchment to the Gutenberg printing press. It's just the next evolution in it. So I don't, I don't see the problem. I, one of the funny things is when I, when I was um, studying law many years ago, um, we had closed book exams and we had to handwrite closed book exams. And it was just to test your memory. It was ridiculous. And my brother did a law degree recently and his exams were all handwritten still, but open book exams because they realized that if you don't know where the answer is in the book, you're not going to find it during the exam. So that's, you know, there's been evolution in that one thing in just the assessment of tasks. We're going to have to find new ways of doing it. Um, we're not, like as an institution, most of the Australian institutions have said, we, we know you're going to use chat GPT. Here's how we want you to cite it. You can't write your whole assignment and you can use it for segments. So, you know, we're, we're trying to teach them. But one of the good things is, is it's put the whole contract cheating industry out of business. So there was a whole industry that you'd go into the toilets, into the bathrooms, and they'd have the little tear-off tags for people who would write your assignments for you for money. And, and it was a really bad thing because students would do that and then they'd get blackmailed for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it was a – and that, that entire business has gone out of business now because of ChatGPT. So it's disrupting many people. And there are many jobs that will go, but there will be new ones that emerge. So the example I always use is the jobs that I do now did not exist when I left high school. There was no way to train me for them, but I can do them anyway. Well, and my joke was going to be until ChatGPT becomes sentient and then starts blackmailing people and going, hey, you used my, my thing. <laughs> I don't think that's actually going to happen. But so... um. Well, Kate, this has been a, a, a fantastic conversation. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to or any specific way you want to wrap up the content of the episode? I, I think I want to bring it bring it back to the whole idea of data mesh, which I think is a really important and, and really significant one. And one of, the, one of the things that I wanted to just say is I love this idea of, of the technology, the people, the process all integrated with governance uh, in, a, in a really – organic way. And I think that that's something that, that we as data practitioners really need to try and build towards because if we don't start to consciously build towards it, we'll never get there. It'll always be a thing that people talk about that we never really do. And a lot of the plumbing stuff that I've been doing is kind of building towards it, but I haven't told anyone we're building towards it. They probably won't listen to this podcast. I, yeah. I have a lot of people that I've talked to that are kind of doing things and adding more capabilities to their developer platforms around data and things like that, where you're, you're just creating, again, that capability for people to do what you want them to do instead of 
we are now doing data mesh and it's, you know, a proclamation with a bunch of horns and, you know, da, 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 da. like, no, that's, that's, hmm. it's, it's that momentum. It's that incremental. It's that building towards better instead of trying to make huge shifts. But in certain organizations, I understand politically, that's not as easy, but like, you know, hopefully people can find those. Just maybe we can coin a new term. Perhaps it's stealth data mesh. Yes, I, I I like that. Um, you know, there's there's even one that's in um in your neck of the woods, ANZ Plus, that was talking about kind of just adding more and more things to the the platform so that people are like, oh, I can do this awesome thing with data that I couldn't do before. Great. And they're learning more and more about data. So well, Kate, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like them following up about? Other people are welcome to follow up with any questions that they have. Uh, the best place to find me at the moment is my Data Revolution podcast, Data Revolution one word, dot T-E-C-H. Okay, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes as per usual. So, Kate, thank you so much for your time today. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Kate Carruthers, who's the head of business intelligence at the UNSW AI Institute and chief data and insights officer at UNSW or University of New South Wales. You can find a link to her LinkedIn as well as her podcast in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs, but I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 